welcome to episode number 106 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we bring in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. People often ask us how they can start contributing to the preservation of video game history. And if there's one piece of advice we give the most often, it's start local. Find people near to you who contributed to the medium. Get their stories. Get them down. Make sure they're documented. Our guest today, Nicholas Yanez, did just that. He's here today to tell us all about Budcat Creations, the only AAA studio ever to grace the state of Iowa. Uh, Nick, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. So glad to have you here. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Yeah, right on. Um, oh, cool. Thank you. So, Nick, uh, you weren't just an interested historian. You actually worked for Budcat. Yeah, um, that was my first sort of entry into the video game industry. I was finishing my first year as a PhD student at the University of Iowa. Summer was coming up, and I just, I've always been a workhorse. I was looking for summer work, and someone just casually mentioned, hey, there's this video game studio in town. And given that my interest has always been in the, not just popular culture, but the entertain the the business side of popular culture, the, the how the production of mass entertainment is done, I thought this could just be a cool insight into how video games are made. Um, little did I know that they were sort of part of the Guitar Hero empire at the time. Um, and it sounds a bit hyperbolic to, hyperbolic to now say the Guitar Hero empire, but I was there. I was. I remember that time period of having to like go with friends to toy stores so they could so I could help them buy these Guitar Hero items for their kids, and it was massive. It was everywhere. It was huge. And once I sort of found out about it, I just sort of wanted to apply. It was just a basic QA job, and I worked there for a summer. And as that time ended, they would still bring me back periodically to do pickup work in case they needed more QA work done. Um, and it was just sort of this great period of just two years, just interacting with these incredibly smart programmers and artists. And when it ended, it was a sort of bitter. It was a, a bitter time because I, the majority of my friends left the state, and I stayed behind to finish my degree. But we stayed this tight knit community um, where there's a Facebook group that's always active. There's a listserv that we're still active on. Um, every Halloween, one of our old friends will create a Halloween playlist for us. And so every Halloween, we know we're getting a Budcat themed <laughs> Halloween playlist for us to sort of enjoy together. Um, and even so, even though we sort of all partitioned off in our own directions, there's we, we're almost all friends on Facebook or all connected on LinkedIn. And we still sort of stay in contact with each other. Um, it's been over a decade. I think this has been one of those jobs that all of us that stayed with all of us in a really important and positive way. Yeah, we, we, we love these sort of... Uh inside historians it's like like we're starting to finally uh, make our way you know <laughs> into the right places and, and 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 get these stories documented but um to, and onto this podcast and onto this <laughs> podcast we, we want you on this <laughs> podcast if, if you're if you're at a studio and you're you're the nerd who's like digging through cabinets and stuff getting everyone's history together please contact us but uh in the meantime to sort of uh backtrack nick um Run us through, you, you mentioned um, Guitar Hero, but just kind of run us through the games that, that Budcat did, just so uh, for listeners who hadn't heard of them, which honestly included me before you contacted us, um, you know, like, tell us who it is that we're talking about, like what their output was. Um, I started in the summer of 2009. 
Um, and so the QA work they had me on was largely Guitar Hero 3 and porting it to PlayStation. Um, and but and, the, and, and uh, Budcat was also responsible for the Wii versions. Is, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that is true. Um, and while I was there, that also began work on um, Aerosmith and Guitar Hero World, World, Tour, uh, World Tour. And we also handled, I believe, Guitar Hero Metallica. Um, that was also, there was a weird story when I worked there that one of the members of, guitar, of Metallica was upset that their songs were playing on Guitar Hero. And it was just a moment of like, wait a second, why is this person upset? Like the only way a Metallica song would appear on Guitar Hero is if it went through multiple lawyers for their approval. Why is this guy acting like he's surprised by this? And it just turned out one of the Metallica members was just actually surprised that Metallica signed a deal with Guitar Hero and didn't know about it and just made a public just had a public hissy fit. Um, they got a good history of uh, public hissy fits about the music appearing places. Yeah, it's one of those You're things. You're opening up a can of worms here, Kelsey. I don't know. <laughs> I don't Going know. for the Napster cut here. <laughs> I know. I, I was a teenager <laughs> in the 1990s. And so I remember like just how cool Metallica was and, it's like, and how quickly they became old men in the eyes of their fans. Um, but there is also there is our house party, which was, I don't know if it, initially it was supposed to be this weird Home Depot tie-in, and I don't know what happened to that sponsorship if it stayed through or not. Um, I just remember there were weeks I'd come in and someone would just mumble under their breath like Home Depot in like just very bitter way. Um, I'm I'm so like, you say Home Depot game, and I'm like, oh, a platformer starting starring Homer. The the, yeah. the Homer bucket, Homer mascot, the guy on the orange bucket at the <laughs> oh, Home Depot. God. I want to play that game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess I didn't know there was a mascot. Yeah, next time you're at Home Depot, look for the orange buckets. They're called the Homers, and there's a guy on there with a big <laughs> nose. That's Homer. That's I have an orange bucket. I've never. I guess I've never looked at it closely. Homer bucket. Homer bucket. Um. So there, there was also <laughs> some involvement in the the Madden franchise, or was that sort of pre Budcat? Um, that's, that was part of, that was before I got there, but there was always, but they, they did bad at work. Um, I think that's how they initially got their foot in the door, um, and showed like they could play with the big leagues. Um, but as they sort of shifted over to Activision, well, once they allowed themselves to get acquired by Activision, they lost the rights to Madden. Got it. Got it. Um, so let's just start at the start then. So, um, we're talking about Iowa, but let's, uh, Let's be confusing and talk about Florida for a minute okay. before we get even more confusing and talk about Vegas. Um, so, so uh, tell us about you know where the sort of founders uh, met each other, where they worked. So maybe introduce our sort of cast of characters, so to speak. Here, so it begins with Tiburon, um, specifically the Orlando, Florida area. Despite the fact that the state of Florida in general has been long tried to create its own thriving tech industry. Um, there's a phrase here used called the Silicon Swamp. It's just never taken on. But Orlando has been a constant home to uh, video game studios and digital production. And Tiburon was one of them. Um, it was. It still has a pretty good uh, reputation, but it was also employ Isaac Burns and Jeremy Anderson. Um, they were the first two to work there, and they're the ones who also were from Iowa together. And so you have these two Iowa guys working together in the state of Florida, and they just sort of became friends. Um, eventually, uh, Jason uh, Jason Anderson would join them in in Florida as well, working there. And so you have sort of the three corner the three cornerstones of Budcat 
sort of just meeting together at Tiburon Studios in, in Florida, I want to say late 1990s, um, and just getting to know each other and realizing they can work well together. So um, how do we kind of get from there to uh, to Budcat then? Because, I mean, I don't know. I, I, like, I like that the or- the actual origin of Budcat is, is, is one that I think is common kind of even today, which is that someone wanted to tinker with a dev kit and they needed a company to do that. <laughs> so they just made one and then they got yeah. a dev kit. Um, I do miss that was That's one of the many reasons why I did want to write this story down because I think we forgot that so much of the video game industry was sort of ad hoc in the 1990s and early Mm -hmm. 2000s. And it was very much like, I don't want to say like a garage band, but it was more blue collar. There were just more of a guitar hero, if you ask me. (laughs) Um, And so it was just people sort of doing this stuff. And basically at one point, um, I believe it was Jason um, who moved to Las Vegas and he was sort of in the Las Vegas area and he wanted he wanted to work on a new dev kit and he just couldn't figure out a way to get it. So he just decided maybe I can just sort of start my own company and say it's Budcat. Um and for context, it was after Tip Brown was acquired by EA and or is after EA acquired Westward Studios and he wanted to move to Las Vegas to work there. And of course by the time he started working there, um I believe he describes it as his first day in Las Vegas. It turns out his job was canceled. And so he found himself in Las Vegas needing something to do. So he just sort of started tinkering around and little by little created the Budcat sort of LLC to sort of continue staying in the video game industry. Right. I imagine, you know, the, the, the idea at that point is like, I'm going to be an independent contractor. I'll find some work somewhere now that, yeah. that my job uh, uh, fell through. But, um, you know, that's, that's just, I mean, well, I guess one way of asking this is like, did it work? Did he start getting work? And and, and how does he start sort of incorporating um, his friends from Tiburon into this? Uh, and it does work. Um, one of the first games he worked on was the NCAA Football 2001 for PlayStation. And it's it was enough where he could sort of show that he was, he wasn't quite a one-man operation, but it, it showed that with a small team led by him, he could actually, he could turn a project around. Um and, and this was basically game, just that his old company, like contacts at his old company um, yeah. over at EA were kind of needing that expertise back, right? Yeah. And of course, when it's one of those things within the video game industry that I don't think we communicate to a lot of new people entering the industry. It's just not about talent or ability. You also have to be able to get along with people because if there is a moment where, there's, where a game studio says, we need to hire this type of artist, we need to hire this type of software engineer, most people immediately think of who's their friend that can also do that job. Yep. And that's how a lot of people still get jobs in this industry. It's not just about applying for the job. It's about making sure people like you enough to want to let you know this job is opening. And so Jason, like many other people, um, reached out to people he knew. And he was in Las Vegas. And it's sort of this company just sort of grew and took place in the Vegas area. Um, and it was successful. It was successful enough where they kept on, where they grew into a sort of a full-fledged company. And it was successful enough that as it sort of became something, as Budcat actually became an actual studio, I think Jason began to realize that like he didn't want to just stay in Vegas to run this business. He wanted to go back home to Iowa, and he wanted to eventually relocate back to that state. I liked the the part of the story where they're basically just like um, 
yeah, we can't stay in Vegas because it's a terrible place to raise a teenager. I've got a young son who will eventually be a teenager, and that's bad. Frank, you want to, as the teenager from Vegas, do you want (laughs) to, you want to weigh in on that? (laughs) Uh, I don't really know where else. I don't don't know if being a teenager is anywhere else, but uh, I don't know. I I think I'm doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I don't think it's that different than anywhere else honestly like but i mean if you're an outsider coming in maybe maybe you have a well especially if you're from somewhere like iowa you know um vegas might might seem a little strange but um no i don't i don't think there's you know a high delinquency rate or anything in vegas i think that was just some personal biases coming through (laughs) and comparing to home um what what i kind of enjoy is that I often hear of people or entities moving to Vegas to save money. Um, I don't often hear people moving from Vegas uh, to save money um, because that was a part of the the discussion as well. It wasn't just um, it wasn't just child rearing. It was also like affordability, right? Yeah, and it's weird, sort of, how this situation's flipped because I ended up being attracted to Iowa. Of all the fellowships that I was offered, um, I was told that Iowa had a great cost of living there. It was really affordable to live there. And that's technically true if you look at it from a state level. But once you zoom in on the key cities like Des Moines or uh, Des Moines or Iowa City, the cost of living there is actually quite high. Um, so it's one of those scenes that when they talk about Iowa and Iowa City, they're often talking about the larger area, such as Cedar Rapids, where it's still incredibly affordable. Um, so when you sort of take those non-Iowa City areas, compare them to Las Vegas, it actually becomes a lot cheaper. Um, now, I don't know, um, did Las Vegas ever have, did did they ever, ever offer tax incentives for entertainment companies? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I yeah, should know neither, that, right? I don't know that. Yeah, neither do I. Um, and, and Iowa struggled with that, but they've never offered tax incentives. Um, I, I think right now that even though Iowa is still far more affordable than Las Vegas in general, I think there are other benefits of living in Las Vegas, such as it being a, a growing tech hub that would probably attract and maintain a current video game studio. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's the flip side, right? And 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 it is something that will, um, spoilers, come to, come to bite some people in the butt, right? Which is that um, the risk of moving a game studio to Iowa City is that if something happens and you need to get another job, you're there's not really much in the area for you. I mean, like the closest game dev is in other states, right? Like Minnesota, right? Minnesota, Wisconsin. I think there might still be a few in Chicago. Yeah. Um, um, I know Midway's still technically alive. Um, but overall, like it's one of those scenes where if you're in the, if you're in Iowa and your company goes under, you have to move. There's yeah. really you either have to change careers or move, and there's really not. A third option so they moved to they moved to iowa they set up shop um this is about where you come in right yeah so they so they sort of relocate around the 2005 area and they're doing well um they they're 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 doing well enough to stay in business but little by little they slowly begin to realize that the money isn't as stable as they want it to be um because they're and mostly of, just doing like contract, you know, but one gig here, then try to line up the next gig, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, like Jason Anderson, you know, compared the studio structure 
to a treadmill. And I think that's really yeah. an apt description of, of a work for hire business model. Yeah. And it's one of those scenes where little by little, they're beginning to realize they just can't do it. It's just not, it's, it's probably sustainable, but not, it's going to be so stressful. They don't know how sustainable it can be. Um, so they, you know, love- it might be worth pausing here actually just to describe that model even, right? Because I, I don't know that people really understand. Um, unless, I, I think anyone can understand. It might just need a little bit of, of explaining. If So this the, the sort of business model that Budcat had was essentially, you know, we're not creating product that we sell directly. You know, we are being paid by EA or Activision or whatever it was at the time. Um, per project to deliver something to spec, right? It'd be like being a roofer or something, right? Like I am paid to come to this person's house and fix their roof, right? Like it's, that is the model. And, and so um, the danger of that model, I mean, there's, there's risks and benefits to any business model, but the, but the, the, the risk with that model is that, work dries up, right? Like you're, you're just constantly chasing the next thing. And, and especially in something like game development, um, where you're potentially employing a lot of full-time people of different disciplines, um, some of which are more suited to the beginning of the project and some of which are more suited to the end of the project, right? Like it's, it's really difficult to keep everyone employed if you don't have, um, steady work that you know is coming and it's one of those things where i, I often describe it to friends as they know me i'm a freelance contractor i get a job i do the job i then get a check for it and budcat was sort of the corporate equivalent to that where mm-hmm. they got a job they did the job and they got a check for it the problem is i'm i live by myself i'm one person they were employing over 70 people at one point um and it's one of those things where these are not cheap jobs i mean even if you just say they're only getting paid fifty thousand a year. Um, you're still looking at an annual just a budget of over three million dollars, and it's one of those things where it is exhausting. And the benefit of it, though, is that they can work with whoever is going to give them work. Um, they're not really dependent on just one studio. They can go to whoever they want, who's offering the work. And at that point, they had a great reputation. Um, the downside is it's also two thousand eight, and this terrible thing happens called the recession. That um, <laughs> I was sort of somewhat lucky in that I remember being in Florida during the summer before it happened, driving around and seeing just block after block of houses where every house had a for sale, a for rent, and a for lease sign in front of it. And then I was like, well, I'm a grad student. I have a fellowship, so I'm fine. But for a lot of other people, even the video game industry, there was collectively tightening their belts. And Budcat was in this weird situation of, we may not get any contract work because of this, so it's probably better for us to just sort of allow ourselves to be acquired and at least we have a guaranteed paycheck coming in for everyone. And this was around the time sort of I get a job there. And it was, as I mentioned earlier, a great time. It was a great place to work. Um, I still love those people. They're still my friends. And it was sort of this great insight of seeing sort of the video game industry, especially this traditional AAA one, sort of struggling, but and also trying to transition to something else. Um, one of the games that's often that people often look over something called pixel maze and it was the only ios game specifically created by budcat specifically for the iphone and although overlooked there was that interesting time period where a lot of AAA studios were just like what do we do with this iphone thing Mm -hmm. it's hugely popular but it's not it's not it's not a huge segment of the market 
are we going to make games for it? How do we even approach it? And Budcat is one of those studios that was struggling trying to figure out like how to actually approach the mobile market, but just didn't have enough time to actually fully transition to it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in, in an independent studio, you might be tinkering with iOS or just mobile games in general, just to sort of like make sure you don't fall behind just in case that's where the market goes, right? No yeah. one knew at the time that, you know, 10 years later, there would just be like four people who make money on the mobile market. Like for all we yeah. knew, like everyone was going to make money on the mobile market. Um, oh, yeah. Um, well, and, you- and people thought, you know, the traditional game model was going to work there where you purchase yeah. one game up front for a price and then you own that game and you can play at any time as opposed to, you know, sort of what what most of the ones that make money on do uh, yeah. these days, which is that sort of freemium model. Oh, yeah. Which is, yeah, yeah uh, uh, pay for user acquisition and then trick them with gambling. Yeah. <laughs> like, I yeah. think that's the model. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. And that 2008 to 2010 period was interesting because I think to some level they began to realize there was something, there was something in the air that they made this deal with Activision. And even though many of the people I know still think highly of Activision, there was this sense of you're in Iowa that I don't think the owners fully internalized where there was that human connection. That if I see you every day and I have to make cuts, I'm less likely to cut you as opposed to someone who I don't see every day. Right. And so I don't think they realized that it almost set themselves up to be easily pigeonholed as just the porting studio that even though there's a huge amount of potential in that studio, there was a great group of people who could do more than just porting games Activision would never see them more than that. Um, one of the quotes I just had in the in the in the article that game developer really picked up on was the idea that in the video game industry, uh, extinction is cheaper than evolution. That mm-hmm. once sort of your niche runs out, once Guitar Hero sales begin to go, it was just easier to get rid of all the Guitar Hero studios than to actually allow them to spend a year or two to sort of find a new niche to work within. Well, yeah, and that's that's something we kind of even glossed over, right? So, you know, the Activision acquires the studio ostensibly. I don't know their side of it, but it seems like um, everyone's like, "Oh, this Guitar Hero thing is forever," right? Like, let's let's hire the studio that we've been working with. I think, right? Like they, yeah. they had been, yeah. So let let's uh, let's put a ring on it, right? Let's, let's, let's make sure that we have this studio that can support this, this franchise that we, that is our future. Um, and to your point, like kind of pigeonholes, Budcat, right? It's like, yeah. we, we, I don't, I don't know that they ever thought they bought like a creative studio, right? Because I mean, frankly, there's not a lot of original IP or anything coming out of Budcat. It's like we acquired guitar hero support and we, I would imagine from Activision side, it's like we we're buying insurance that our reliable Guitar Hero house is never going to have a different project. Like they'll always be there when we need them. And and um, much like there was a recession, uh, you know, uh, with economics, uh, there was also a a, a music genre crash um that 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 was that was really rough that um i mean tell us about it i mean you were there you were there working on 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 these games yeah um and it's one of the things i just quickly had to look up again but like september 2009 uh article comes out i think it's from game industry biz and it talks about how the guitar hero franchise their sales had dropped by over 50 percent 
I mean, that's catastrophic. Um, and that's uh, not to fully put tangent away from the history of this article, but the one bit of resistance, resistance I had when working on this article that still drives me insane is people saying the video game industry is recession proof. The 2008 2009 recession had no negative impact on the video game industry. And it drove me so crazy. I literally went through the history of recessions in the United States from 1980 to present and then began finding news articles about the video game industry for every recession just to show evidence of there being a sales decline or just a softening of sales for each recession, just to have this historical overview when people said that the video game industry was recession-proof. And it's one of those still narratives that pop-ups all the time where, at the start of COVID, the video game industry is clearly recession-proof. And now, a few years later, there's all these layoffs, and there's a few articles coming out saying, well, the video game industry isn't recession-proof. And it's sort of this weird cycle that just happens. And I don't know how much more evidence I need to accumulate before I, before I have this, like a sledgehammer to prove my point. It's, it's like on a delayed recession thing, I think, is maybe the... <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't know. Because, yeah. I mean, the beginning of COVID, video games were booming, actually, like yeah. genuinely doing better than, um, you know, most other industries. And, and just any, like, you know, entertainment you could do from home. Yeah. But yeah, that is not, uh, uh, those days were not forever. The days of yeah. everybody being uh, stuck inside and also, you know, put in many parts of the world receiving some kind of uh, like stimulus check. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, well, uh, that was not forever. Something similar happened in the 2008 recession. It wasn't as extreme as what happened during COVID, but there's actually sort of a bump in the early months of the 2008 recession where... I guess people began to feel this panic and this anxiety, and plus it was still winter, so they were still Christmas shopping. The people just said, "Hey, you know what? Just for the kids, and just for the grown adults, and, and just for like the thirty-year-old kids in our lives, we're just gonna spend some more money on video games." And then slowly, as the recession progressed, I think people realized, "Oh, we need to really tighten our budgets and just stop spending money on all these luxury items." Um, or we, or they just said, "You know what? We already have this video game. Let's just play it again." Um, but it was one of those moments where looking back at that time period and working on this article, I was just reminded of, yeah, the recession did have a negative impact on the video game industry. Um, and it was one of those, it was, it was almost made worse because it wasn't as quick as the rest of the economy. Um, it was far, it was delayed and it was slower. So I think it sort of, I think I felt the gaming industry sort of had to deal with these layoffs on their own. There wasn't sort of this collective sense of loss as you saw with other industries at the beginning of the recession, there was sort of almost a sense of isolation that only they had to go through this. So Budcat's closure uh, sounds like it was pretty rough. You know, like it sounds like there wasn't a lot of, uh, I don't know, like even discussion on Activision's part about alternatives to closure. Like, it, I mean, from from those you talked to, it just sounded like it was it was... <laughs> it was kind of mean <laughs> and, yeah. and blindsided yeah. you know like a and i i don't know i i do want to take a sec to point out that um you know the the founders were not that worried about it which i think i don't know which kind of says something about it right yeah. like they we're like, yeah, but you know, we're cheap. We are in Iowa. They won't get rid of us because we're we're cheap. We're pitching them on new ideas, and we never miss a deadline. Like we yeah, are exactly. reliable. The, the we're track good. record, right? The track record yeah. was spotless <laughs> at that point. So, like, why would they get rid of us? They could just give us a different game. They can give us Tony Hawk or whatever. Yeah. we we deliver. 
Yeah, and I think part of it is that it's in many ways almost a precursor to the remote worker layoffs we're now seeing where yeah. there's this idea of like, so what if we're not in Las Vegas? So what if we're not in Los Angeles? So what if we're not in Silicon Valley? Or so what if we're not in Seattle? We're reliable. They can send us work. We get it done. We're no drama. We're just great to have in their back pocket. But because they weren't there every day, because they weren't networking with the heads of Activision, because they didn't have those personal connections, mm -hmm. I think Activision leadership just said, oh, okay, we can just get rid of them. They're just another studio and we can just sort of let them go and move on our merry way. Um, and it was one of those scenes where even now, uh, reflecting on sort of like how quick, it, uh, how quick those layoffs happened or how quick the shutdown happened, it was one of those scenes that even, even people who sensed that something might've been happening just didn't know how to prepare for it. Um, I had friends who they bought like a house six months before the studio shut down because they thought they were going to have a job there for, for years to come. And because they bought this house with a sort of a special deal offered by the state of Iowa, they just couldn't resell it. They had to stay there for at least five years. So they were just sort of stuck in Iowa. Um, other people said like, hey, this is a stable job. My girlfriend and I can finally get married. And of course, they lost the job. The girlfriend wanted to stay in Iowa. The, the, new, the now wife wanted to stay in Iowa to finish her PhD. And he had to move away. And that long distance relationship just ended. Um, it was one of those things that happened so quickly that they just... But in retrospect, we can see the writing on the wall, but no one at the time could really see it happening. So what do you do if you find yourself an un unemployed game developer in Iowa City? I mean, the, the, like, how do you move on, right? Like, yeah. like did, did the team sort of decide to sprout another studio? Did people, um, you know, did they move to Minnesota to, to, to work in game dev? I mean, like, did this sort of, destroy a lot of game dev talent or did people manage to move on and make other things a little bit of everything um for the people who stayed in iowa i think they quickly realized that there wasn't going to be a bud cap part two um the founders were kind of just burned out um so that left everyone else there and it's not as easy to sort of like this was before the heyday of kickstarter and even then bud cap didn't have that reputation of the guys at Budstat are going to start their own Kickstarter. We have to fund this. Right. Yeah, like, they're, they're not a household it? name. Right. They're, a, right. they're a studio that ports stuff for the yeah. most part at this point. So, I mean, yeah, like like Frank said earlier, not a studio, you know, most people, even people in the industry are super familiar with. Well, and yeah. I would think even financiers would be like, well, you just made like Guitar Hero ports. Yeah. You know, why, why would we think that you're going to make us a lot of money? Yeah, so it's one of those things where they're not sort of attractive enough to get venture capitalist money get venture capital yeah. money also the video game industry is a weird thing where i don't know if you can just go to a standard bank and just say hey we want to start a video game studio and then get a bank loan for it um i i imagine most banks would be rather suspicious of that because they just don't have a standard a common framework to how to measure mm -hmm. a good idea for a video game studio um and a lot of people who did stay just moved on to different careers um jeremy and another guy uh got to uh, became auto mechanics um, one even sort of started working, started his own, uh, bought into his own body shop. Um, other people did stick around, uh, two friends I'm still close with. He and his wife started something called Shape Trick Studios, which originally was going to create mobile games, but now we transitioned to making color books for kids. And they're really happy doing that. Um, other people were able to find some type of tech work in Iowa, usually in the agricultural tech sector, but there just weren't a lot of jobs available because, 
if you're sort of an artist who had three years experience of drawing guitars or doing Guitar Hero, that doesn't really translate to any of the tech jobs in the state of Iowa. Um, so many of them just left the state. And many of them just left the state, the entire video game industry for good. They just realized that there was no stability there. Um, one of my previous conversations with Warren Spector, who I think the world of, um, I'm one of the few people who still defends Epic Mickey 2. Uh, he mentioned to me in an interview of, if you enter the video game industry thinking you're going to have a 20 or 30 year career at one studio, you're wrong. You're lucky. You're probably going to have a career filled with three to five year stints at different companies, and then you have to go elsewhere. And a lot of people at Budcat quickly realized this was probably going to be their future of, all right, go, I move somewhere. I work there three to five years. The studio gets shut down. I move, do that again. And they just realized that wasn't the future they wanted. So they moved to other bigger cities where they had a thriving tech scene and just sort of plugged themselves into sort of non-video game industry tech se- sectors. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of a a bummer and the reason why um what seems like you know a a studio in iowa seems like a pretty good idea to me at least on its face it's like office rental is very expensive wages are very expensive like all of these things can be easier in a place like iowa and um you know as you pointed out in the article like they they really didn't even struggle with recruiting there's a major university nearby like they they did fine um, but the expectation is just sort of that nothing is forever in the game industry. And if you have nothing else around you to fall back on, um, so everything just kind of keeps uh, accumulating in the same three places. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those things where now, cause I still dabble in education every now and then, or I'll still sort of talk to college students that my professors are working with. And they'll ask me like, should I apply for this job in the middle of Nebraska? And I say, no. Um, mm. Nebraska is a beautiful state. I'm sure it has really cool stuff there. But if that job goes under, you're stuck there, and there's probably not going to be another job you can easily transfer to. And I don't think people fully internalized or understand how to calculate how expensive it is to relocate your life. Where it's not just finding an apartment, putting like first, last, and and a state and a deposit on. Um, you have to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars just moving your stuff cross country. Um. And not well, to not mention to mention the, you're not uh, you're not really a prime candidate to a recruiter if you're not already near home. Absolutely, base. like you have to be top of your class. You know? Yeah, um, and even now with the explosion of remote work, or at least what well, I, I think we saw as the explosion of remote work, I think we're now seeing remote workers as being uniquely vulnerable to these yeah. layoffs. Where if the company wants to lay people off but doesn't want to go through the process of firing them. It just says, okay, everyone has to switch to hybrid work, so you have to be in the office four days a week. Oh, you moved three states away? We're sorry to let you, we're sorry that you have to go. Yeah. So as someone who was there, I mean, were, were you there to the end? Um, they still sure. brought, no, I wasn't working at there to the end. I was still br- being brought back every now and then for extra work. I wasn't a regular employee at that point. But, you know. Having been around and 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 still having friends there and and making connections and everything, I don't know. This this is a pretty fuzzy question, but like, what do you think Budcat might have been given the opportunity? I think it could have been so much more. Um, and I don't just say this as someone with who is romanticized in the past. I I was there. I knew the talent that was there. Um, and it was even exciting at the time that 
there were people talking about mobile games and during lunch hours people were talking about like wait you can do this with the cell phone now the smartphones are coming out with these types of specs oh we could have this type of game or we could do this with this type of game um and so there was sort of this excitement in place of maybe we can go in a mobile direction um and it just was never given the chance um and I think that's one of those things that does sort of, I think for a lot of people who were at Budcat, when they think about that time is that Budcat was never given the chance by Activision to show what they could truly do. Because um, they, I, I really do believe they had the potential to be maybe not a powerhouse superstar studio, but they could have produced some really cool games. Um, and they were just never, it was just the opportunity never presented itself. Being super reliable was uh, apparently not enough, which is really I mean, a really sad reality uh, for the end of this studio. Um, I want to backtrack just a tiny bit, just because I'm curious. Um, you have in the article a photo of, you know, like the last room standing at Budcat Studios, just an oh, yeah. empty room, basically, with a Guitar Hero uh, like flyer on the ground, which is uh, some beautiful environmental storytelling, just <laughs> <laughs> tragic. Um, but I mean, I know you weren't there for this specifically, but obviously, you know, you have friends who were and um, still keep in touch with these people and interviewed them and everything. What does, you know, when Activision sends out a team to shutter a studio, like what what does that look like? What does that actually entail? Oh, so I actually, when I heard about it, I tried to stop by the next day because there's always an open door policy for me because the owners and people like me there so much. That was no longer there. There were bodyguards there. There was security there making sure that if you were not a current employee, you were not allowed in. Um, but one of my friends described it as they got to work and there was like, not quite cheerleaders, but there were these people who were very cheerful talking about like this great opportunity that's presented itself. And it was really told to them as like, yeah, the studio is shutting down, but this is an opportunity to be, to go in a different direction. Um, what years unemployment? Later, what direction? <laughs> years later, one of my friends would sort of describe it as, what they would compare it to a scene from the movie Up in the Air with with George Clooney, um, where when they were where they were brought into cause where where if a company wanted to lay off a lot of people, they'd bring in George Clooney's character and his company, and they would basically say like sit down with people and say like this is what's happening, but this is an opportunity for you to build the next empire. This is an opportunity for you to pursue your dream and build your next passion business. Um, and it was yeah, it's one of those moments That's where dumb, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we forget that there are entire companies that are sort of professional firers. I, I don't know the proper term, but if you're a giant corporation, you're too cowardly to fire people yourselves, you will bring in outside help to come in and lay out these employees for you. Man. <laughs> um, so let me ask, why did you start this sort of journey documenting Budcat? And what was your sort of takeaway once it was done? Uh Part of, I mean, there is a mercenary component. Um, I uh, pitched this idea to another magazine, other than before a game developer, and it was during the, it was just as the pandemic was starting. So I had this idea for an article. They greenlit it, and of course, as soon as the pandemic hit, they canceled the contract. Um, just as I turned in my first draft, I was like, mm. "Well, great! Now I have this seven thousand word article. Um, what do I do with it?" Um, well, part of me was so part of it was just the mercenary need to make money. Um, Got it. The other thing was, I still, I think it tells a uniquely a unique story about tech about tech startups in the Midwest or basically tech companies in the middle of nowhere, which is a 
there's a lot of sort of romanticism about it. There's still this idea of if you build it, they will come. But there are also a lot of economic externalities that I don't think are ever fully documented of, well, what happens when the market changes and your main customer base no longer works there, um, no longer is interested in you? What happens to that business? What happens to those people? And also at the time, this was during... Um, it's weird to say, because I don't think Shark Tank was on the air yet by 2010, but there was sort of this early explosion of tech entrepreneurship where we were already sort of idealizing tech entrepreneurs. We already thought that if you were the tech industry, that you were sort of this leader among men. And I think the tech industry has a, has the ability to sort of ignore companies that didn't th- survive. We tend to sort of valorize all the companies that have survived for over a decade and just are completely had amnesia when a company just shuts down. And so I've always been interested in documenting stories about companies that just don't make it for various reasons. Um, I think those stories are a lot more interesting. um, And I think they also are a lot more educational to say, here's a company that was doing well and here's why it failed. And here are the lessons you can take away from as opposed to a business course about Facebook, which is still doing well. Um, But one of the many things I did take away from it was Personally, I will never take a job in the middle of nowhere again. Um, I love being a remote worker, um, but all the companies I remote work for now are based in Los Angeles and Seattle, and those are two healthy ecosystems. Um, there's always work for my for these companies to find clients, um, and even if I had the opportunity to sort of move out to the middle of nowhere, I'd be hesitant because the moment my remote jobs ended, what am I going to do if I'm living on a farm? Like. I guess I could become a farmer now, but that's a that's a big change of pace for me. Um, the other thing is, I think I, 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 it's amazing to me how the video game industry has sort of forgotten that period of the late 20, 20-aughts, the early aughts of what was popular, especially, I think, just how insanely popular Guitar Hero was and how quickly sort of disappeared from the landscape. Right. It was almost like there's this culture amnesia and it was almost sort of a precursor to the Toys for Life games that we saw around 2015 with like Skylanders and Disney Infinity. Um, that it, everyone just thought, oh, this game, this type of game genre is going to go on forever because people are going to want to buy these collectibles. And then you realize, just, like the Guitario stuff, that's it's just clutter. That people only buy so much at peripherals before they just stop caring about the game. Um, but yeah, it's also just sort of a. I think it's also an idea of sort of like. A, I also admired my bosses because they really did take a chance on building that studio. And I don't know if I would have ever had that break, that, that courage to actually sort of like, Hey, let's go to a field. Let's just go to Iowa and build a startup and see what happens. I'm remembering that time. I mean, you know, you just bringing up like we, we kind of have this memory hole of that time. And, and I agree with you. I mean, something that I want to contribute is that, um, this isn't the gospel like it used to be, but the, the NPD reports every month used to be how we tracked how the industry was doing. Yeah. Right. And, and I was a journalist, um, you know, the before and, and during and after this period. And um, there was a time like the NPD report came as an Excel file and tab mm. one was software and tab two was hardware and for a good year or two, tab three was peripherals, <laughs> you know, oh, wow. like, like we as an industry truly believed that we had found something new. Right. And it's yeah. like, 
um, you know, we like the business model was starting to get complicated. I think it's even more complicated now, but you know, I think, you know, kind of like the music industry, like it's like, okay, maybe we make money on merch, right. And maybe merch is part of the interactive experience. And, and like, this was a very real idea at the time that I don't think we should blame anyone for pursuing. And, and, you know, even Activision doing things like, um, it's called Tony Hawk ride. Is that the one with the, the, yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, that made sense at the time. Um, and you know, I don't, I, I think the I think the guitar game thing will have a revival at some point. I don't think we're there yet, but I, I think you know people it, it, right it, now are just so turned off by the like everyone is hungry for it, and they're turned off by the prices of reacquiring yeah the uh, giant uh, instruments. I mean, just you know, speaking from uh, game store trends that I'm seeing in my own stores, people really would like. I mean, and we. We try to discount those to be, you know, far cheaper than online because a lot of those guitars go for a hundred plus bucks online. And, um, you know, even at like $60, people are like, oh my God, that is so much money for a plastic guitar. And I I don't blame them like that. It is, but it's, uh, I don't know. There's a hunger for it, but it hasn't quite reached whatever that like tipping point between price and, uh, and hunger for it is. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I guess my my only point is that like, you know, this this was a real time that we all memory hold, right? And 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 it was a, a really bright future, and and in a way that I don't know, at least for me and and most people I know, it wasn't like like blockchain or whatever, right? Where it's just the investors are are, are into it because they don't understand, you know? It's like no, we all kind of thought, you know, like oh, this could work, this might be something, and and it, and it wasn't, and and you know, Budcat was one of the um, sort of unfortunate uh, victims of, of of the windfall of that. Um, but, you know, the other thing that 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 kind of came up for me reading this and, and talking about it is is that, um, you know, th- this was a studio that prided themselves on solving people's problems right yeah. it's like oh you need a game well, i mean this started right with their yeah. work on ncaa 2001 right it's like yeah. ea was calling it was jason right it was yeah. called in for that yeah ea started by calling in jason as like the fixer right to like come in and just like get this game out the door in two weeks or whatever it was and, and he did it and he got the job done and that's what they prided themselves on and um and, you know, you talking, Nick, about remote work and everything, it's like, I, I think in the business world, people just want quick solutions, right? They don't want to think about it. They just want to throw money at the problem and get it done. And and I actually think that the lack of being physically near the people who make those decisions, you know, makes it so that they don't think of your face when they have yeah. a problem. You know, I, th- I think it actually is that simple and that, you know, Budcat might still be around today if they were near HQ or, yeah. you know, they, they might've continued being work for hire if they were in like LA or the Bay area or something like that. And, and um, I think I'm with you, Nick, I think, you know, starting a, a company like this in a remote place uh, maybe isn't the best idea. Yeah. Um, and there were other things, um, going back to the question of things I took away from it, um, I was one of only, so again, you go to a university town and you sort of just assume that 
okay that they're going to be the major source of uh, of employees. That if you're in a university town, if we start a business at say the University of Texas, uh, Austin, we're going to just pull from a lot of that school for their employ for employment. And I was shocked to find out that I was like only one of three people in the studio or one of two or three people in the studio who actually was a University of Iowa student. The vast majority of them were outside the state of Iowa. And that part of talking to my boss is about like, what, what, explain this to me. Like, what do you mean you didn't pull from the University of Iowa? And for them to just sort of be like, not necessarily casual, but not, not dismissive of the university, but just sort of saying, we didn't really need those students. We were... A video game studio. We just had this online test that if you're interested in working with us, you took. If you passed, we'd bring you in for an interview. And it was sort of mind-blowing to me because once people at the University of Iowa knew that there was a video game studio in town and it was associated with a big property like Guitar Hero, they would sing the praises of, we have this thing in our orbit, that we're neighbors to it. And it was weird to sort of look back and find that the, the people in charge just sort of didn't really think much of the University of Iowa. Um, that they weren't a huge source of employees. And it was one of those things that sort of took me by surprise of, I always assume that in college towns where we see university tech sectors spread up around colleges, I always assume that they are sort of the economic engine in place and it sort of gets overlooked. But I slowly began to realize that there's so much talent now globally, even 15 years ago, that if you're just in a big city, you could probably attract talent everywhere from across the world and you don't need a college or university near you. That was sort of something that sort of shocked me um, when initially doing research for this article. Great. Um, really, really thought, thoughtful stuff here. Um, lots to chew on. Um, Nick, thank you so much for joining us here on oh, the Video you. Game History Hour. Um, for those uh, listening, we will uh, be linking to Nick's piece on gamedeveloper.com in the show notes. But uh, other than that, where can people keep up with you on the internet? You can find me mainly on Twitter. I'm still one of those people. Um, I'm at Nicholas Giannis, uh, easy to find. And I'm, of course, on LinkedIn and post news, but I'm mainly active, normally harassing friends on Twitter. <laughs> Maybe uh, you'll be his next uh, victim of harassment. Uh, <laughs> thank you again, Nick. This is great. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>